Welcome to A Christian and a Buddhist Walk Into a Bar. My name is Jamal and I'm a Buddhist. I'm Jacob. I am a Christian. And pertinent for this episode, you're also a minister. Sure. Yeah, why not? Why not? I've, I've, I'm not ordained for the record, but I yeah, work in Christian ordained? ministry. No, they're I, getting to that. I, I thought that up. was just automatic. No, apparently not. Oh, so do you have to like do anything special to get ordained? Well, there has to be like an ordination. And yeah, like a, a ceremony. The church yeah, yeah. hierarchy of working through does, how does that it, works. Does it change anything that you're not ordained? Like are there certain things you can't do or are, there, are you less holy or, you know? Oh, well, I'm definitely less holy. Like <laughs> an ordained person wouldn't be having a podcast for the Buddhist, man. What's... Are, are you telling – is this the way I'm breaking to me that there's, <laughs> there's a time limit on this podcast and we're almost at it? No, no, it's, it's all absolutely fine. Uh, there's there's – yeah, it's complicated. We'll go into that another time. Okay. <laughs> Tune in next week for Ordination of a Lutheran Minister, part <laughs> one of 17. It'll be a bit of a ramble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so I, we have an article this week. It was something you sent to me. And I, I want to premise this by just saying, I think this actually may be the first time we are going into an episode where I think we are starting from a point of conflict or starting from a point of disagreement. Which is really interesting because I don't yet know what you're going to say. Well, this, this is, this is so why we're, yeah, it's going to catch looking, you by surprise I'm looking here. forward to this. So I, I've sent you an article uh, basically about finding God in the sunset. Um, and the, the author of this, who is a Christian minister... Lillian uh, Daniel. Lillian Daniel. I'm not sure off the top of my head kind of what tradition within Protestantism she belongs with. Uh, but she she makes a point that um, she begins with an anecdote of someone sitting on a plane next to her, finding out that she's a Christian minister and feeling the need to explain to her everything that's wrong with the church. Um, and that they, it's not that they don't believe in God, but they find God in sunsets and nature. And why do you need to go to church to have an experience of God? To which... Her extended response in essay form more or less boils down to, do you think that the people who are in church don't also find God in the sunset? This isn't some fantastic revelation that only people outside the church have had. And then a bit of a defense, I guess, of the community of faith and what you get with that, which you don't get having a more individualized, privatized faith. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, so I, and I, I guess when I read this, I, a few things struck me when sure. I read this. Um, and the first one is that, like, broadly speaking, I agree with her points. Um, so, you know, I, I agree that absolutely people of faith who are part of church find God in sunsets. Uh, and absolutely her points around the particularly the um, the kind of the ways that through church you also learn to appreciate a lot of the things we would mark as negative and the kind of the, the critique of um espionars as as beck would call them um which is spiritual but not religious yes folks for those playing at home yeah, yeah. so so the critique of of them which might be you dear listener so we, we yeah, love you exactly yeah. um I, well i certainly do um but um but yeah the, the the critique of those people being kind of you know just overly looking for the cream of the cake and not everything else or mm -hmm. overly just looking for the positive stuff and wanting to drop the negative stuff and how that, that might not be as spiritually profound and deep. I, I, I broadly agree with that. Position. There we go. Cool. Case closed. We're in agreement once again. Yes. However. Um, so yeah, I, I, to start off. Yeah. I, I, I do agree with the position and I agree with the critique of spiritual, but not religious 
uh, people. Where I started to take some umbrage with this article was that it just struck me as somebody having a whinge. Oh, and like, yes. and it's yeah. it. I, I guess I started to think a little bit about like, why does this matter to you so much? Like, why is this such a big deal? You've written two separate articles about it. Like, it to me, it struck me as somebody who is potentially quite upset and disturbed at the declining role that church is playing in society and lashing out and lashing out in kind of almost a quite aggressive way. Like that, a kind of almost unministerial. Yeah, way, like, like yeah. It, it feels very unministerial to me because like at, at the end of it, when it boils down to it, I also go, even if all, all that you're saying is correct, why does it matter? Like unless you directly see your spiritual journey as a minister as being – you know, as you needing to convert every single person you come across. Like, I, why does it matter that someone on an airplane tells you they find God in sunset? Like, sure, it's annoying. Sure, I, I can see why that's annoying. But, like, have some grace here is kind of mm-hmm. my point a little bit. Like, it, it feels a little bit like it is just somebody who's – I think you said they, she posits a defense, and I, it feels defensive. It yeah. feels very – tetchy and defensive and quite, quite, um, as you are, yes, you know, unministerial in, in a way. And I, and I just don't understand where that's coming from other than a place of um, fear, honestly, mm-hmm. fear of the, these people. Yeah. And, and if, God, if God is so big and great, what do you have to fear? Well, so I think there's two separate kind of fears there, if, if you like, the, the, the God, if God is so big and great, what do you have to fear? We're, we can park that and come back to it if you like. But I, I'm I'm, I'm going to disappoint you by agreeing with you. No, no. I, <laughs> I, thought we had, I thought we had something here. I, I think you've read the tone of the piece um, in, in a similar way to, to how I saw it, which makes me wonder then, like, if we think about what is the audience of this article. Because I, I don't think she's writing this. The the shorter version, which is just a, it's kind of cut down of the, the bigger one that'll be in the um in the show notes. That's right, we have show notes now, yeah. There'll yeah, be did. a link in the notes. We, we've had show notes this whole time. Yeah, that's true. I just you, you, feel, you, feels fancy you just don't do them, them, so you don't know about them. <laughs> the smaller piece is published in HuffPost. So that's a you know a kind of wider audience i guess but i i suspect that she's talking to christians well yes yeah, primarily and and probably wanting to do two things on the one hand to give christians a bit of a toolkit to understand and even have some responses ready when somebody talks to them about finding god in the sunset or whatever but to go to your fear point to also go well, hey, look, there are there are good things about being in church, and don't just go off and find God in the sunset and and become one of those people as well, because that's obviously mm. you know. Yeah, I I don't know. So the longer post is in Christian Century, right? Yeah. Which is obviously a a religious publication. Um. So yeah, I, I think her audience is Christians, right? Her yeah. audience, but like, I don't know that it's a toolkit. She doesn't. She doesn't at any point. She doesn't at any point talk about how you could engage with people who are spiritual but not religious in a way that would it be supportive it just feels like here's how you criticize their arguments and here's how you prove they're wrong like it it seems very polarized in its thinking mm-hmm. and it, it seems very tribal you know and again to me that 
I think the audience is a really important point here because I think she is talking to Christians who are also aghast at the decline of Christianity and the decline of the church, right? Then like it it just feels like it's it's the ultimate preaching to the converted, but also at the expense of a different group. Like, you know, I, it to me, take me back a hundred years, I would not be surprised to see a similar article about, you know, women's suffrage or African-Americans written by similarly positioned people about how, well, you know, how can these people consider themselves proper Christians or whatever else? Like it just strikes me as very much a, a kind of a defense of the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah or, or, or an almost a, 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 a kind of a, a rallying cry to, to defend the status quo because the status quo is under threat, you know? And I don't know. It just, it like, I, I understand the audience of this piece, but I think that almost makes it worse because to me, if you're really talking to a Christian audience here, the question should be, you know, hey, these people might be slightly misguided, but how do we how do we kind of engage with them in a thoughtful way that will help them on their journey, whatever mm-hmm. that may be, rather than just, ha-ha, they're all stupid. Yeah, no, I yeah. think that's a fair comment. Mm. So for the, the purposes of putting a podcast together on this <laughs> article then, if you were... If you were going to write something addressing SBNRs, um, seeing as we're using the acronym, mm. from a, you, you can do it from a Buddhist perspective if you'd like rather than... Like what, what, what kind of tone ought she to have struck rather than... Preaching to the choir still, mm. what, what, what tone would you look for well, in a piece like this? I mean, I would be pulling out what people who are spiritual but not religious are saying and I would be trying to link that to the existing religion. Right. So if I'm if I'm Lillian Daniel and I'm from a Christian perspective, I would say, well, you know, I, w- I would make the point that, you know, they're talking about finding God in sunsets. And then I say, mm-hmm. well, you know, we also find God in sunsets. Yep. And which is the point that she makes. Yes, but she, she follows that up with, well, aren't they silly for finding God, in, you know, for thinking that's profound. Right. Sure. Whereas I think the follow up point I would make from that is that's a point where we can connect. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a And it's something that is profound. Yes. Like the, yeah. which perhaps get missed when you say. Isn't that you know? Isn't it silly that you think that that's yeah. profound? Well, because it is profound. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. So, so maybe the point is not. You know, the, the point is yes, we both find these things, but the point to the to the converted is, well, you know, here is a way that you can connect with people. You sh- you know, you should talk to them about how they find God in sunsets. You should, you know, you should describe how you find God in sunsets. Mm-hmm. You should you know build connection with people. I I, I have mm-hmm. a I have a habit that I've had for a very long time, which is that I. You know, shock horror. I How really can I smoke? no, sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, um, no, shock horror. I really like interfaith dialogue, right? And yeah, I, yeah. I really like talking to people who have different positions. And if a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness ever knocks on my door, I talk with them mm-hmm. and I have a conversation and I give them the time of day, not because I have any desire to be converted by them, but I, I'm trying. I often try to find the the mutuality there. I, I once had a Jehovah's Witness tell me that I was ninety percent of the way to God. I was like, <laughs> this is great. I love this. Um, you know, and it's like, yeah, I mean, to me, it's about going, you know, yeah, how can we connect on this? And how can we find mutuality? And how can we both be enriched by this experience, even if your beliefs are quite different to mine? And, and yeah, it's just like, so I, I think the... And so then particularly if your beliefs are quite similar to mine, mm. which is the, the starting premise of the, yeah. then, then it's a bit of a, a missed goal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, it's a missed goal and a missed opportunity. And I think... Honestly, it's it's not loving your neighbor, right? Like it's 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 loving your neighbor 
uh, unless they're saying what you're saying in a different way, in which case be snarky at your neighbor. I, I, yeah, yeah. I but yeah, I, 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 so I, I don't know. To answer your question, to kind of double back a bit, I think the tone that I would strike in an article like this is to explore like the existence of espionage and look at, you know, hey, what do they believe? Uh, what do I believe? And how can we find mutuality and groundedness here? But I would honestly also, um, and and this is actually, here's another one, uh, another reason why I don't like this article. It's I would turn the looking glass back on myself and go, what is it about the church that has driven these people away? Because they clearly have very similar beliefs, right? Like, if they're finding God in sunsets, then they're clearly <laughs> finding God somewhere, right? Yeah, like yeah. that, the, they are, um, they are connected. So, what has the church done to turn these people away? And how can I, as a, a minister in that church or someone who's representing that church, help undo the damage that the church has done in this person's life to make them want to turn away? You know, mm. um, I I find um, Lillian Daniels' other book kind of you know, enlightening about this. She, she's the author of a book called Sick of uh, Sick of Apologizing for a Church I Don't Belong To, which again is that same attitude a little bit of just like, oh, well, you know, it wasn't, wasn't my, I'm not a Catholic. It wasn't my church that, that abused all those children. So mm-hmm. therefore, you know, uh, I shouldn't be sorry for that. And it's like, well, no, you have an institutional legacy here. Even if you have nothing to do with that institution, you're still part of a, of a tradition that that benefits from that, so you have to take some responsibility for that, even even if it's nothing you did. Yeah. So I'm I'm with you on a bunch of that, and and I agree. There's much better ways of addressing it, but one of the points that she gets to where she finds that disconnect is the understanding of sin, right? Like that that people. In, in the view of Lillian Daniels, don't like the church because they don't like the idea of sin in some ways. And it's absolutely on point to then think about, well, how has the church spoken about sin and, and taught kind of the, the understanding of the, the brokenness that is sin that's kind of within ourselves as well. But is there something there that, that is you know fundamentally and anathema to a lot of people like are there in in not just christianity but any religious traditions things that are going to be kind of tough to swallow i guess and to what extent do you park those and leave them and not even address them and to what extent do you go well actually there are some people that are just going to struggle with this and find this a problem it's going to make it hard for them to connect but this is kind of integral to how the faith works um, I mean, the Buddhist answer for that is that Dharma is varied and, you know, you, you use the messages that people will respond to. Um, I'm not sure. Like, I, I guess to me that's a better question for you. Like, what's the Christian perspective there? How, you know, if there is some core tenet of Christianity like sin that someone is not willing to engage with, well, what do you do? Well, like that's just the thing is I, I think there's a certain point at which within a, a church setting like i'm not going to not talk about sin and we're not going to not have a practice of confession or something like that because simply because it might turn someone off Mm. um it in a conversation with somebody like it's it's never what i'm going to open with and i think there are much yeah as, as you've said there are much better ways of addressing the challenge of sin than kind of as she does here of just going 
hey, look, there's there's sin in the world and some people don't want to face that and they should really like toughen up and face face that because belief in God is not just all sunshine and lollipops and rainbows. Um, one of the questions that she asks here, which I, I think is a, a helpful one within the, the framework is, uh, let me see, talks about seeing God in the sunset, um, but what about seeing God in cancer? Mm. And cancer is nature too. And she goes on to say, well, do you worship that as well? But like the answer, of course, is that you can find God in cancer, right? And and actually for at least some people, that's where they actually encounter God, like yeah. in those darker, more problematic, the, the non-sunsetty parts of life. Yeah, and I, I wonder, I wonder whether we, if we talk about something like sin or you know, probably probably the Buddhist version of this is karma and reincarnation. I think that's one people struggle to get around. Yeah, sure. Um, and I mean, to me, the question should be: Well, if someone doesn't understand it, then you're explaining it wrong. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. Yeah. It, absolutely. It's, it's, it's not just like, oh, well, you don't understand it, so therefore, you know, you can't fully like. Yeah. You know, but it, but it's not a it's not necessarily a problem of understanding, right? Because I, I feel like when you've explained karma and reincarnation to me, like I understand it, but I'm not on board with it. And that's a different, and, and maybe that's a problem in my understanding, but I feel like that's a different thing. Yeah, but I, I, I think, and again, I think that's probably though because we're operating from such different premises, mm-hmm. right? If we accept the premise here that a spiritual but not religious person has some relationship with God, um, then them going, oh, no, I'm not on board with sin, I mean, well, my understanding of sin is that it's yeah you know, that sin is something that I can get on board with as a Buddhist, right? Yeah. Like it's like you yeah. know it's you know with that sin is not just this whole like oh you do something bad you go to hell for fire and brimstone forever kind of stuff. It's like you know it, it, there's a different understanding of sin and what it does, you know. Um, well, and it, which is what the article misses, right? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't go into so if you're talking with somebody who finds God in sunsets and nature. Mm-hmm how do they unpack what's wrong with the world and where yeah. does that fit within this spiritual framework right yeah yeah um so yeah i don't know i it just i i i don't feel like it actually here's a question i want i want to get at cuz i think this is something i want to pick your brain about what what is it that what is it that she's so scared of Right, because I I think I I can I can sense the fear in the article, and I can sense the whole like, mm. you know, my, my guess is it it's the it's the kind of the, the slipping away of the power of the church, the fact that you know, I think she mentions thirty percent of Americans being you know spiritual but not religious, and that that, that that's somehow this big, you know, boogeyman that's hiding around the corner to to end the church once and for all. Um, I I guess like, what is it from a Christian perspective that you see that she's actually getting at here that is driving this kind of attitude of um, of kind of, you know, it, it, the holier-than-thou attitude <laughs> that, that she's taking to this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've just noticed actually at the bottom of the article that the essay is based on a sermon. Yeah. Right. So it, it really is preaching to the choir mm. in that sense. I've, I wonder if it is... The sense of, you you know how you have the, or, or you can have the biggest disagreements with the people who are most similar to you mm. on a bunch of other levels. And I wonder if that is part of the fear that is sitting 
behind this. Now, this is entirely me projecting. So, and this isn't necessarily casting aspersions on Lily and Daniel. This is just kind of me projecting a bit. But I, I wonder if the question, either for, for her or for the intended audience, is around, uh, well, the people who believe this are kind of almost too close to us. Like, mm-hmm. if there's an anxiety around the question there of, what difference does being a Christian make in my life? Um, and and that might be, if we think again about the the audience, like a, that it's not so much an attempt to give people tools to um, have conversations with spiritual but not religious folk, but it, it could well be a, here, let me kind of try and remind you why your Christianity matters right. within so, the so, spiritual so it, framework. It's actually a retention pitch rather than a conversion pitch for the spiritual but not religious. Yeah, and but see, and if I see it that way, then then the fear is just that the, the fear is actually the the commonalities that you were talking about before, mm-hmm. where the commonalities are a potential bridge to here, let me kind of help you explain Christianity and how I think that Jesus, you know, finding God in Jesus or or God finding you in Jesus actually fixes a bunch of these challenges with being, you know, not having a, a religious grounding for your spirituality. Um, that rather than doing that, it's... Uh, no, I, I think I understand yeah. that, though. Like, it's, it's, it's... Yeah, I didn't think about this as actually this isn't... I think this is your audience point before maybe, which I kind of missed slightly, but like that actually the audience matters so much here because the point of this article and this speech is not to, it's not to actually attempt to engage with spiritual but not religious people, but it's to hold spiritual but not religious people up to religious Christians and say, here is what the risks of doing this are. It's a kind of, it's a cautionary tale against becoming those people. But the problem is that in my opinion, it would actually do the retention job better if it was trying to actually engage with those people. Because if you assume that the problem is that you've got an audience of Christians who are potentially spiritual but not religious and you're, you're trying to prevent that from happening, then the things that the spiritual but not religious person is thinking are already things that they're thinking in some way, shape or form already. Mm. And so by actually addressing that more fully like and and maybe there's something to the framing it of um hey look these people are these these people have it wrong and look at you as a christian you've got a much better framework for dealing with this like how much less gullible are you because you see god in more than Mm. the sunset right but that is like it goes right back to your point right that it's it's uncharitable and unhumble Mm. and on some level fundamentally unchristian to say look at how much better the christians are like i know nothing in christian theology that Mm. goes you should like like paul does the opposite of this right like the apostle paul like the you know number two to jesus in the significant figures or maybe maybe number three but like in the significant figures of the founding of christianity goes i consider myself to be nothing i'm bottom of the heap i've come Mm. right down because jesus did that and and this doesn't do that at all. Have you heard about um, the kind of the actual, I don't know if this is theory or if this has been leaked, but like it, it's the most plausible theory for why the Mormons send people on mission? Oh, I have heard this, but yes, yeah. please. Okay, so so the 
the actual conversion rate of Mormon missionaries who go all around the world, and yeah, so for those who don't know, uh, the Mormon Church, predominantly based in um, in Utah and the United States, but you know, with other branches, um, has a very long tradition of sending mostly young men uh, to various parts of the world uh, to preach and to attempt to. You kind of do a gap year of, yeah. or gap two years of mission kind of yeah walk up evangelism essentially yeah, yeah. to attempt to convert yep. people and you know they're the you know the you know very smartly not smartly dressed but very schoolboy usually dressed, in suits, you know, suits and, and yeah you know, and they've got a little badge that says elder blah if you've seen the book of mormon it's, musical you know what we're talking about it's the whole premise of the book of mormon musical yes um now the actual statistical rate of conversion successful conversion from that is almost nothing like the the mo- that is a deeply unsuccessful way. It's like under 2%. I'm yeah. not sure exactly what it is. It's but yeah. a hugely unsuccessful way of converting anybody to Mormonism. Now, you know, you could we'll make arguments about whether, you know, I actually am very pro in-person conversations being the actual way to change people's minds about things. I just think maybe the Mormon script is a little off and they could use a different script about it. Well, I don't it. think there's any, any sort of cold call walk up to yeah. someone is going to suffer from the same things. I, I have some, yeah. I have some behavioral psychology uh, research that, that might counter that slightly, but it's a very different tangent. I'll read that someday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Send it to me. Um, it, look, in, look into deep canvassing. Deep canvassing is just amazing. Okay. Um, but the argument is that the actual purpose of sending young Mormon men out to convert other people is not to actually convert other people, but it's to reinforce uh, and retain those young men in mm-hmm. the Church of Mormonism because you put young men into a situation where all of their friends, their only connections in a country, their only source of emotional well-being is tied to the church, uh, which it maybe was their whole life, but you put them into a foreign country where that's definitely so. You send them out with a script that has most people telling them to F off and to, mm-hmm. you know, to go away and you, being very adversarial and you reinforce the idea that my only security, the, that the only people who understand me, the only people who care for me, the only way that I feel safe is through the Mormon church. Yep. Um, and it is a brilliant strategy for retaining young Mormon men rather than a strategy for converting anybody whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. And and a strategy that is has to be said, like has similarities within some Christian mission, but also... If you wanted to up your conversion rate, mm. if that was your your point, there's probably a bunch of things you could learn from Christian mission and mm. potentially even Islamic mission. I don't know. It, that's a, that's an interesting question. Are there lessons learned from Islamic evangelization? I'm sure there. I'm sure there are. Podcast for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like, I I wonder. I don't know. It's it's an interesting position, right? And I, I think there's something similar going on here with yeah, just trying to frame the argument as well, you know, here is where you will actually get spiritual satisfaction and here's actually right. where, you, you know, you, 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 you again, it's, it's very classic, um, you know, it, it's very classic kind of, um, I don't know what, what you call it, but like, you know, you know, ways to retain your people is make make somebody who is similar to mm. you, but, you know. It's a dangerous outsider, right? Yeah, like, the dangerous yeah. outsider thing, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, I don't know, this article made me sad. Uh, it it it, yeah. it feels it feels a little bit just like, you know, there's so much potential here, but it's just a pastor who's trying to desperately keep hold of her church. And <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I can I can see that. 
Mm. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry to have agreed with you so much. I know. I I was hoping you were going to side with that. We were talking about this earlier in the day and and you were selling at us. We're going to have a fisticuffs in the podcast. (laughs) Well, I, I, I think I was hoping that like that, that she would, I I guess I assumed that you would kind of really stick to, well, the point is correct and actually spiritual but not religious people are a little bit silly. Well, if if you phrase it like that, right, I I agree that the point is correct, Mm. right? But it's not framed helpfully here. Because I I think I heard you say at the beginning of the episode that you're certainly sympathetic mm. to that argument as well, right? But there, there's a helpful way and an unhelpful way to say it. And if if we're kind of correct on this, then this way of framing it is is not helpful to the mm. spiritual but not religious person if the if the aim of it is to actually make present Christianity as a attractive kind mm. of religious belief for them. But it's also not serving the Christians as well as it could. Mm. Can, yeah. can I bring in power? Because I like to bring in power to everything. Sure, why not? Well, Foucault would say that power is inherent in everything uh, and all relationships are power, dynamic and... My, power. yeah. Have you run a prison? Foucault stand right here. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, to bring in Foucault to this, like I, one of the things that I think I struggle with here and I think one of the things that I, I see more broadly and I think it's hard, I, I, I'm interested to hear how you navigate this as a Christian, Yeah, is that... You know, Christianity and Christians are so used to being the dominant majority, at yep. least in the West, right? Yep. That, and especially in America, that um, you know, you're so used to being in power, you're so used to having the power, and not not just from a kind of, um, you know, societal dominance perspective, but like a political dominance, like you know, it, mm-hmm. it's embedded in, right? Prayers are said in Parliament and all these things, and like you know, it's all this stuff of like you know, it it feels. I don't know. Like it feels like it feels a little bit. I feel a bit put off when I hear Christians complaining about the fact that they're losing some of their power because it doesn't. To me, it doesn't recognize the historical power that's had and the historical benefits that yeah. have been associated with that. And you know, let's not even talk about the roll on to wealth and class and other forms of equality and inequality. But like, it's also like this idea that that. That you know, the losing of power is like suddenly makes Christians the underdog or makes Christians the oppressed class. Like this, this desperation to be seen as oppressed because now non-religious people are equally as you know, equally as populous on the census as you know Christians. And like, you know, like, I'm sorry, how is this oppression? How, how yeah. is this any of that? And like, I don't know. It 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 feels like a lot of that kind of that that kind of kid having a tantrum at the fact that someone else is getting ice cream as well as them kind of kind yeah. of thing. But like, yeah, like, I, I guess I'm interested in how you see that because obviously, you know, you're someone that I, I feel recognizes those power dynamics more. And like, what's your thoughts on the decline of Christianity's power and how do you appropriately handle that as a Christian? Yeah, it's a good question because the position that you've outlined is one that I'm not inherently sympathetic with like the, and, and, uh, part of this is because, at least within Australia, I'm part of a Christian tradition that sees itself as having had comparatively less power historically, right? Like, so, yay! <laughs> it's, 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 it's this fight to be the oppressed one. Like. Yeah, that's it. That's it. We're at the bottom. We're, at the, we're not. Um, 
yeah, I, I'm I'm not terribly sympathetic to you for exactly the reasons that that you're describing because it it's that classic thing that is that sits behind um, kind of white supremacism, male rights movement, the the religious right of when you've been in a position of advantage um, and privilege, equality feels like inequality uh, be- because you you are experiencing real loss um, and and that is I think I think that's the point that political commentators and policy makers and so on miss sometimes is is the fact that it whilst it's not unequal it is experienced as real loss uh, and that needs to be probably managed and spoken about from a political perspective um, better than it generally is but yeah I'm, I'm not terribly sympathetic to it it does give the church a challenge to to navigate a um, a missional theologian um, from Amsterdam by the name of Stefan Pass is a guy who I found really helpful in this um, because he he just makes the point that Christians shouldn't expect privilege and we've got to learn to deal with that like you, you've Christianity was born in a context and existed for you know four centuries at least in the in the Western world in a context where there was no Christian privilege there was no particular advantages to being Christian and yet we've got used to there being a whole bunch of inherent systemic advantages um, to it and and now we get to get used again to not having that and quite possibly becoming more Christ-like in the process. Mm. Like, again, like, it's a faith in a guy who was killed by the ruling elite Mm -hmm. for being a threat to the status quo and a bit of a someone who they didn't particularly like the cut of his jib and he had no rights of appeal or anything like that. Like, yeah, it... (laughs) Yeah. Christianity having privilege ought to be an unusual situation that we don't know how to deal with rather than the norm that we need to wean ourselves from. Yeah, and it, it's... It, you know, like, like if, if, if Christians have had a whole bunch of power, then there's a sense in which Christianity's gone astray because they haven't been giving away their power fast enough. And, and, and maybe that's an argument for the whole all power corrupts thing, right? Because if even the holiest religious people, when given power, fall into those traps and become less Christ-like and less Christian in doing so, then the, you're, you're in a real pickle with that. Oh, and, and if Christ is the ultimate incorruptible one and, and also the, the ultimate model of power, right? Yeah. And... and but he uses it by giving it all away, then... Well, this is honestly why Buddhist monks take a vow of poverty, right? Like yeah. they, they, they recognize that you can't balance having power and privilege in society with also having material wealth and also trying to be holy. It just it doesn't and, work. And at some point, the Christian monasteries lost that. Yeah. 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 Um, so it does remind me this time a Christian and a Buddhist walk into a bar. Oh, excellent. Um, you know, and they're sitting, uh, well, they're not sitting in the bar, they, they walk into the bar um, and it's, it's in the daytime. So they're, they're, they're actually in there to go get a coffee. Um, and, and they go up to the, to the bar and um, they're about to order a coffee, but they see that like these two, um, these, these two like, you know, you know baristas, you know, bar workers are, are having an argument over who needs to make the coffees, you yeah. know? Uh, and so there's this guy and he's going, no, absolutely. 
you're the one that has to make the coffee. And then, and then there's this woman who's working there going, no, you absolutely have to make the coffee. And they're arguing about it like, you know, nonstop. And they, you know, they're trying to like come to some resolution. And eventually the woman says, no, it's in the Bible. Like it's in the Bible. You have to make the coffee. It's in the yeah, Bible. Okay. Um, and the guy was shocked. She's like, no, it's not. Like, come on, show me here. And she, and she turns to the Christian and goes, oh, can you give me the Bible you're carrying? Because Christians famously take Bibles everywhere. Correct, yeah. yeah. So, so they pull out the Bible and, and, and the woman opens it up and goes to one of the New Testament books and says, it says right there, Hebrews. Hey. Yeah, there you go. That's nice. yeah, yeah. yeah, that's good. That's, that's a feminist joke as well. That's a, yeah. a quality. There's, yeah. there's a whole lot yeah. of layers to that one, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Do you know who else has a whole lot of layers? Uh, is it the uh, famous onion man, Kevin MacLeod? The one and only. Did you also know that he's the reason why the Spanish national anthem has no words? <laughs> Very but good. nobody knows why. <laughs> Very good. Um, you can find us at ChristianBuddhistBar at gmail.com if you'd like to send us any, uh, any bits of information or articles or anything you like. And follow us on Facebook and you can walk into a bar with us at some point. We'll see. <laughs> I, I reckon we, we would keep this ending because now it's story time at the library. <laughs> <laughs>